everyone. Welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto trading and investing to NFTs, decentralized finance, and so much more. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell financial products. This podcast is sponsored by CoinFlex, the home of crypto yield. Whether you're passively managing money or taking an actively managed approach, you can earn and trade crypto easily on CoinFlex, which sees over $2 billion in daily trading volume. CoinFlex is committed to making crypto derivatives yield accessible to everyone, whether you are investing hundreds or thousands of dollars and more. With a newly launched automated market-making product called AMM+, you can earn yield on crypto by providing liquidity into the futures markets. The AMM Plus is 10 times more capital efficient than other automated market makers and offers multiple collateral types so that you can earn more with less. Interested in learning more about CoinFlex and trying out the AMM Plus? Head over to coinflex.com AMM to get started and let the market work for you. Hey, Hassan. Nice to meet you and thank you for coming to Crypto Unstacked. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, happy to be here. Cool. So Hassan um, Akhtar is from Nibio. He's uh, part of the DeFi market making team there, which is going to be fascinating for me to learn about because I come from a pure market making background on CeFi exchanges in the traditional space and obviously in crypto on the exchange space. And I've never really met a DeFi market maker. And I'm sure there are a lot of things that are similar and a lot of things that are also different. And I'm looking to explore this with you. So Hassan, if you don't mind, if we could start a little bit about your background. So you began your crypto journey in at university, is that correct? Yeah, so I came to Hong Kong for university in 2015. And I was studying uh, physics and math. And somewhere along the line, I kind of didn't go down that academia route. And uh, around the same time, I found crypto. That was like early 2017, right as the first boom started. I think right as Bitcoin first crossed, I think it was 1.5K and then mm-hmm. yeah, it went to 2K. Yeah, just around there was when I first actually like dove into it and actually bought some. Yeah, so that's where our crypto journey started initially. So, yeah, and was that sort of like some from friends or were you going to kind of meetups in Hong Kong and kind of stumbled into it or how did you discover it? I was just spending a bunch of time online because I had a summer where I wasn't doing much really. And yeah, I was just on forums a bunch and found out about Bitcoin initially from there and then just bought some because I realized that you could just go to ATMs in Hong Kong and just buy a small amount if you just wanted to play around with it. Yeah, I moved to Hong Kong three years ago and I was super surprised to see, particularly in LKF, and there was like a Bitcoin ATMs, Bitcoin Cash ATMs, a couple of cafes and bars that accepted Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash as, as payment gateways. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, those restaurants and bars, I don't think have survived COVID, but some of the ATMs are still around, which is pretty cool. So yeah. I mean, I didn't know back then anything about fees and I paid like insane fees to buy this Bitcoin, but it was like a small amount and it was what got me initially started. And initially, of course, in like everybody in 2017, I was on BitMEX and I was in the troll box. And I think a lot of what I had learned about crypto in particular was from this BitMEX troll box and spending time around people from there. Yeah, the troll box is fantastic because I first was coming from TradFi in 2017. I'd never seen this concept of troll box in a box, particularly on an exchange, right? In the, on the live platform. And 
And I remember this one character on the BitMEX one called Janet Yellen, which, who was obviously, <laughs> you know, and I was just tickled pink. I mean, it's clearly most likely a dude. And he was very, very vociferous in the chat box. And it was, it was fascinating. So after university, well, obviously, we said you studied physics. You joined a trading house, a trading company. Is that right? Or? Yeah. So, yeah, through university, I'd been trading crypto, but I would been doing mostly like a Mainly, I would have been doing like a little bit of speculative trading. And then mm-hmm. the rest of what I was doing was pretty much just a basis arb because the basis was like super high. So I would just uh, on the futures, short the futures long using my spot and then roll that over a bunch. And after university, I kind of decided I wanted to go full time into crypto if I could, especially specifically trading if I could. And I joined a crypto house, which was mostly focused on, well, basically it was a model based trading house so we basically built just quantitative models to capture momentum events more or less and i joined as a quant researcher there because my background fits well for that and most of my job was researching features that we could add to these models and basically catch tail events was the entire strategy because crypto had so many tails and catch tail events from sort of like scouting news events that kind of stuff or how popular hits were on a particular kind of coin site or what kind of metrics were you using to sort of build out this picture? Well, a mixture of like, obviously, it's also a lot of market data. First, that's the core of it, I think. So price volume, liquidations, funding rate, open interests, those types of things. And then on top of that, I guess you also can have these news things that you add in. But usually you just make features of these and then you would try to put it into a model. Like usually just a regression type of model or something like mm-hmm. this. and. That's what you would use to actually make your predictions. And you trade, you take a directional position when you think your prediction is strong enough, basically. Okay, fantastic. And so from there, I guess you got into DeFi in 2020. And was that at the same place or had you moved over to Nibio at this point? Or No, so DeFi summer was like right when we switched a lot more there to a little bit more like portfolio management type of stuff as well. And like a lot more manual trading, I'd say, less automated. Yeah. Because before that, it was purely automated and most of my job was like mostly research-based. But then DeFi Summer happened and then we started farming. We started farming uni. So that was probably the first farm we went heavy into. I know we missed out on comp because of that. But uni and then the YAM finance, like the food coins, when those started, we were farming pretty heavily there. And I guess that's where DeFi initially started for me, at least. I'd been hearing about Compound and I'd been hearing about Maker and I kind of understood how maker worked more or less but yeah hadn't really touched DeFi, so to say before that and after that we kind of went really heavy into DeFi in that firm we pivoted pretty hard into it okay and then you joined nibio in at what point then i joined nibio at like early this year so early 2021 which is around feb okay oh fantastic joined mainly for their DeFi side okay and so what is your role there what does your typical day look like So it's a mixture. It's actually, so I guess two things, which are like the main few things that we're doing. Just like we have like a directional portfolio, which we farm with, or we earn yield with in different ways on different protocols where we don't really have a mandate for which protocol we need to be on. So like Solana, ETH, AVAX, CSC, we're kind of farming on all of them. And that's like kind of one of our, our portfolios for the DeFi team. And then we have also the some new strategies that we're trying to build up from the arbitrage side and more of like microstructure side, basically, which you can think of as the DeFi microstructure side. 
So we do both of them. So first, an unusual day is just come in and like first take care of your portfolio side, make sure all your risks are okay, make sure everything's going as expected. There's no news about like any of the well pools you're in or any of the farms you are in. There's no exploits that happened on protocols that you're in. So just make sure about things like that. And then usually I also try to scan for new opportunities in the morning, just go through, we have some tools. And then also we use like Twitter a lot to try to look for these types of events and just make sure that we are earning the best yields with what we're holding as possible. And there's no new opportunities for yield earning. If they are, then we try to capture those as soon as possible as well. These get into those pools. And then the other half of my day is whenever I have free time is uh, mostly on kind of more data science research side, just trying to improve the arbitrage strategies we have and trying to think of how we can do better there as well. That's fascinating. So if I split down kind of the two main roles on the first half of your answer there. So if you are earning, obviously farming on these pools, now you've got delta risk, you've got obviously impermanent loss risk one way or the other, depending on what your base currency is. Are you hedging out your farming delta using futures, for example, on other exchanges? Or do you kind of say it's random walk, going to just kind of sit in here and take the volatility that comes with it because I'm getting the rewards? Generally not. Yeah, I'd say generally, like there's maybe cases where we did, especially earlier on, but generally we're like quite comfortable taking this kind of delta risk with this portfolio as well. So, I mean, our mandate is kind of like a, it's not like a delta neutral mandate for the risk we were willing to take with the farming portfolio, at least. So there's a couple of things like you can say that a lot of opportunities, they get arbed out anyways. So from what we've seen is like uh, a lot of times you can find some opportunities, but a lot of times the larger farm opportunities, if you try to make it delta neutral, you're going to pretty much pay so much in funding usually that it's usually arbed to, well, equilibrium already, more or less. Or it will be in the next 8 to 24 hours, something like that. Mm. So we generally, I would say we take some delta risk there. But it's delta risk that we're taking is generally meant to be, I don't know how exactly, it's generally like our delta risk is usually a speculative bet or on what ecosystem we think is doing well as well. So it's not just purely like, oh, I'm going to hold this coin and I hope it goes up. There's generally like some reason we think that these sets of pools are actually good to be holding here, considering the yield as well. Okay. And then the second half, I think, of that first section was around the microstructure. Is that really around arbitrage and how do we position ourselves to take, you know, making one pool and taking the other pool against it? Is that what you mean by that? Or Yeah, basically kind of stuff like that. Cool. Yeah, basically uh, it's just uh, arbitrage across different pools. Another one of my sponsors is Amber Group. Amber Group is an integrated crypto finance platform behind the popular Amber app a crypto finance app that allows you to easily earn, swap, trade, and invest in crypto. You can earn up to 5% APY instantly by depositing assets to your wallet and receive daily interest payouts. This means earning interest 24-7 with no lockup. You can also customize fixed income investments between 1 and 360 days to enjoy up to 10% APR with flexible redemptions. Right now, new users can earn up to 16% APR on Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USD stablecoins. Go and download Amber app at www.ambercrypto.com and earn interest on your own terms. So one of the things that, you know, because I come from obviously a normal market making background, and so I've been kind of interested in lots of things about DeFi, which I know very, very little compared to 
folks like yourself. But one of the things that's been interesting for me recently is watching the volumes on DYDX kind of rise really, really well. And the tokens obviously done really well as well. Now, as I understand it, DYDX is a central order book from a trading perspective, but really is a DeFi platform. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe they do something like off-chain matching and on-chain settlement. Right. And are you guys on DYDX? Yeah, we're market making on DYDX, yeah. And what is your feel? Because obviously we, as CoinFlex, are a centralized exchange. We also have AMMs on our futures, which are doing really well. And, and one of the reasons why the futures yields, the AMM yields are big on futures is that futures order books trade a lot more, right? Especially a central limit order book for futures. And so I can see why the DYDX model works well. So I guess presumably they have submit orders, modify orders, uh, cancel orders, all the usual kind of API calls that you can make on a CFI exchange. Yeah, um, yeah, basically more or less. It's, yeah. So which component of that is DeFi? Is really the custodial side? Is a non-custodial exchange? Is that why it's considered a DeFi platform? I think it's more like the, so their database, uh, their settlement is on-chain. So like as in, once you have made a trade with some counterparty, that will be recorded on-chain and that is going to stay there forever, more or less. And transfer of funds is going to happen on-chain from your ETH wallet to their ETH wallet, so to say. And the stuff that's happening off-chain is mostly the matching engine, the placing and removing of the order. So basically all the database management stuff. And the only thing that's on-chain is the final step, which is settlement plus the recording of the trade. Okay, that's interesting because we're moving as quite... Yeah, yeah, I'm not exactly 100% sure about this. This is what my understanding is. I don't personally actually work on that exchange. So it's... uh, yeah, so it's, for, it's part of another, some other people in our team actually take care of that. But this is how I understand it works. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, because as CoinFlex, we're actually going to a hybrid exchange model where we're going to remain CFI on the trading side. But on the custodial side, we're moving to a more DeFi style model, type model, where we, we where CoinFlex becomes an N of M in a multi-sig environment where there's multiple different signers across the globe that receive sort of a, a bunch of data using zero knowledge proof technology because we want to be decentralized from a funds management perspective but retain the club and CFI advantages. So this is kind of interesting that DYDX is doing a variant of this as well. So the other questions are really for you guys were now if I obviously spoke to your CFI traders and Clarence and these guys, they would probably be, you know, they do a lot of inter-exchange jobs and stuff you know, within CFI exchanges. Do you guys do sort of DeFi to CFI jobs or the teams like completely separate? Uh, we strategy? haven't yet. So for the, yeah, we haven't yet. But like, so we've been bringing up the, our DeFi ARB strategies basically for the past few months. And I think we've been getting like pretty close now to where we want it to be. But right now, I think we've been trying to work from like the bottom up, as in like form building blocks from the more core components of DeFi and then move towards CeFi. But so far, we haven't done DeFi, CeFi, not at least in a very systematic manner. But I think definitely something that's there that we're probably going to try to do at some point and something that's been at the back of our minds for sure. Is this typically the same things amongst many different trading firms? I mean, are you aware of how other trading firms tend to treat uh, DeFi liquidity versus CFI liquidity from what so you hear? I, I think they treat them pretty... So there are firms that are arguing it. I think there's quite a big presence on uh, 0x. I think 0x market making. It's this protocol. 0x protocol is basically an aggregator, plus they actually allow market makers to quote directly onto their API. So I've seen like, uh, I think some of the other bigger market makers like Wintermute have been quoting there. 
and are being centralized across decentralized using 0x market maker as well. So I've seen some stuff like that, but I don't think there's a huge presence across the market makers that focus on CFI versus DeFi. So a lot of the CFI market makers, what I think they do in DeFi is usually they just do passive liquidity provision and not as much ARBs. Yeah, not to the same extent, at least. They may be doing some decentralized, centralized ARBs, but yeah, not very big. I think maybe the big two or three are, and the rest are not really. They're pretty much focused either on DeFi or in CFI. And how do you see that sort of allocation between DeFi and CFI for the more traditional firms? Like Nibio, I guess, maybe we're only CFI, I'm guessing, at the start and, you know, have transitioned across. Is that the same from a um, resource allocation? Do you see more and more allocation towards the DeFi side from a trading perspective? Well, slowly, I think there's a lot of like this regulatory things that are kind of pushing the market in that direction anyways, right? Like, I think that's the biggest thing. I don't think it's really... No, I guess it's a collection of things. I think one of them is definitely the regulatory side. Like people are getting more and more worried about how countries are going to approach crypto. And they kind of see that DeFi has room for growth because of the fact that there are countries that take somewhat of a hostile approach towards uh, centralized exchanges. And then the other one is that also, I guess the increase in competition drives people to look for new opportunities as well on, I guess, DeFi is what currently exists for them to do that. I mean, in general, I think that it's not such an easy switch for most C5 firms because it's completely different. It's not like you can actually just bring up your old strategies and start getting them to work in decentralized exchanges, right? You kind of have to, from the ground up, build a new strategy. So I don't think it's such an easy switch for most firms or like they would have to actually allocate resources and time without expecting somewhat of a return for a while before they actually get somewhere. This is also partially because there's actually people who from the beginning, mostly developers, Ethereum developers, were pretty knowledgeable about DeFi from the beginning. They've been working on their strategies for quite some time. So there's actually quite a bit of a catch up to do before you can start being competitive on the DeFi side. Interesting. No, thank you for that insight on it. I mean, one of the things, the other thing that's kind of fascinated me as well is how do you guys you get these new swap pools on these forks and copies of Uni and then Sushi and PancakeSwap and the next one. And, you know, we're on Smart BCH now. There are a few DEXs being spun up there. How do you guys look at smart contract risks before you go into sort of these pools? Are you big enough or sophisticated enough to have to do an audit or do you rely on a certain amount of minimum TVL before you go in there? Or do you see, how do you judge? Because obviously, these pools have the highest rewards very, very early on, right? And it kind of tends to diminish. So how do you figure out when to go into a new pool or a new protocol? Yeah, so generally, I mean, more often than not, I think like audits are like a little bit of, I mean, we've seen so many audits that have protocols that have been audited and people think that they're good and they've been audited by people who are like respected in the industry and it's like they still get exploited. So I think like audits have weight, but they don't have that much weight really. Especially not once like you get to, yeah, I don't think not when you get to like projects that kind of are, it's clear that this is somewhat legit. It's not like just a fork of something that already exists and they're just trying to do like a, basically a purely Ponzi scheme, more or less. When it's cases like that, I don't think audits start to matter as as much anymore. I think usually we use a combination of factors. One of them is TVL for sure. Audits are definitely nice to see when you're going into a pool. At the very least, you know what the risks are through the audit because like auditing companies usually will tell you like, oh, 
there's this, this, and this vulnerability that's like, oh, not that important, but it could, in certain situations, it could be devastating for you guys. But yeah, things like that matter, I think, but not so much. I think what matters a lot more for us oftentimes is who's behind it. Can you actually tell what's the team behind this protocol? And does it make sense to put in terms of the reward you're getting? Because like your loss is actually known, right? It's like everything. So actually, or like almost everything, like is the reward okay for the probability that we have for pretty much losing everything in this case? And then also you start to see other, usually because everything's on chain, you start to see other sophisticated market makers or some other people that are like kind of try to be early on things. You can start seeing them going into these types of things as well. And that's usually a good sign that, well, at the very least, you're applying the right kind of thinking. It doesn't tell you whether or not you're going to get like rug pulled, right? But right. it does tell you that other people have been trying to do the same kind of thinking and they've come to the same conclusions as you. Yeah, I guess, yeah, it just is being, I guess that that is your DD really. So your gut at the end of the day going through kind of a few mental checks. And just the final point was really was obviously there's Uniswap delisted a bunch of tokens that they considered securities from their front end. And there's rumors of the SEC taking a look at them. I noticed that overnight that one inch now has a disclaimer where you have to self-certify that you're not American or probably a country or using a VPN. How do you think that whole sort of DeFi landscape from a regulatory perspective is going to evolve in the next year or so? Yeah, I don't know. I think this is the key, right? Like, I think if you look back, like maybe two years from now, if you look back two years ago or like three years ago, what was the really unclear thing about crypto was like, is it going to survive? And is it going to like, what's going to be the big thing? What protocols are actually useful? And like, I think that's changed a lot over the past year where like, People kind of, or the market kind of has decided to a large extent, like, okay, yeah, Bitcoin's here to stay. And then ETH is kind of here to stay. And then you kind of see this entire ecosystem forming around, well, Ethereum and EVM chains like AVAX and BSC. And then you see Matic, like the layer twos and the rollups that you see coming on ETH. So you kind of have like a really much clearer picture of what the ecosystem is like now. And then you have Solana as competitors, which is like, I think pretty healthy as for smart contract platforms, right? Like you have like a good level of competition there as well. But now what's, what it's shifted to, like the uncertainty is really shifted to like, how are countries going to approach this? Because like before it was the case that nobody really cares because it's so small. There's like a few thousand or like 10,000 people doing this in your country. Like who cares about that, right? Like yeah. nobody's going to bother. But now they actually start to know, take note. And as I guess other countries get involved, like El Salvador, internationally, you get more and more scrutiny over what crypto you really is and what people can and cannot do on it. So through that, I think like we see like a split. I mean, China has taken a pretty harsh approach towards crypto as like last week, as we saw. But I think that's also because generally they do have some level of capital controls they need to enforce. So it may not be that they just hate crypto, but it's just like some of their other policies force them to make these kinds of decisions. The US has like kind of been a little bit also on the edge of I guess of late. whether they're yeah. yeah of late basically they've been like okay yeah we like crypto but also there's a lot of problems with it which is I think fair you can do a lot of there are a lot of things that go on in crypto in especially DeFi that's like maybe not healthy right especially for an economy there's a lot of scams going on and things like that so I think it's okay to actually question that but uh, yeah generally I think I'm seeing two well three different kinds of people, like one like the US, which is kind of in the middle and they do kind of want some sort of regulation and they want to govern it a little bit. And then some of them have been completely outright banning it, which is, I guess, right now, the biggest one is China. And then there's also the people that are like just outright accepting it. Like, 
El Salvador and like, I guess El Salvador is the biggest example where they've kind of tied the, I guess, uh, success of their country and economy to the success of crypto. So like their incentives are super aligned. They want crypto to just be as big as possible. Not really, not really, they're not really watching out for, I guess, financial products and how they affect their local people and like how, I guess, regulation, what they need to regulate and how many scams there are. It's just like, yeah, basically they have joined like the bull thesis gang of crypto, which pretty much mm. always existed. But I think it's just like they're in the Michael Saylor team. Yeah, no, totally. It's so cool to see. And more and more countries are doing it. Obviously, I have a huge issue with Bitcoin being used as a payment currency because I don't see Lightning Network as, as being scalable enough to handle global payments. And Bitcoin is way, way, way too expensive compared to, say, uh, Bitcoin Cash or even several other coins, which could perform the same function in a way better than Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin is the brand. It's the best of the store of value of any of those ones. And it'll be have a huge market share, which obviously the market share will go down, but it'll be by far the biggest. And rightly so. It's a granddaddy of them all. And, but from a payments perspective, I'm so, so bearish on Bitcoin as the actual coin of choice but that's me so no i think i generally agree with you like i don't think it makes too much sense especially when like you've actually developed technology that's better at this point like even if you look at ETH-L2s or eth roll-ups like you could use one of those as a payment channel or like you don't even have to use like a main network for payments right no absolutely there's so many choices so many better choices more efficient cheaper multiple things so but look end of the day brand matters this is where sailors of the world and other corporate treasuries that have gone into it. Bitcoin is by far, look, as an individual, my crypto journey, Bitcoin, I'm very early to it. I had, uh, sorry, I'm very late to crypto and I had plenty of coins I could have picked from and I just picked Bitcoin because that's the only thing I could kind of justify to myself to spend my money on. And then obviously that's diversified over time into ETH and, and BCH and I like Sushi too, for example. I, I like the DeFi space. So cool, yeah. Uh, listen, Hassan, I just really, really appreciate you uh, coming on. Today's a public holiday here, for those who don't know, and you and I are both at work. And thank you for coming on to Crypto Unstacked. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a good talk. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, awesome. Awesome.